0: Astonishing Legends is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. In
1: 1971, a 43-year-old novelist and screenwriter, William Peter Blatty, published a book titled The Exorcist. It spent three months on the New York Times bestseller list before Blatty sold the film rights for the story to Warner Brothers for $641,000, or $4.3 million in today's money. Blatty then wrote the screenplay himself. In 1972, accomplished director William Friedkin began filming what would become the first horror film to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. In fact, it received nine other nominations, winning for both Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound. According to Wikipedia, it was the highest-grossing R-rated horror film until the movie It was released in 2017. The Exorcist was made for just $12 million, but it grossed 37 times that at $441 million. The odds are relatively good that you've seen the movie, or read the book, or perhaps both. And if not yet, maybe one day you will. It's a cultural touchstone in the world of horror and fear, and for new generations, watching the movie might even be thought of as a rite of passage. Rite is a fascinating word, isn't it? Merriam-Webster defines it as a prescribed form or manner governing the words or actions for a ceremony, or the ceremonial practices of a church or group of churches. We've, of course, used that word over the history of the show in reference to the Masons and their practices. But there's another use that some of you may have heard of. 23 pages of the Roman Catholic Church's Rituali Romanum are dedicated to something known as the Great Exorcism Rite, and it's the only exorcism rite sanctioned by the Roman Catholic Church. In his book, The Devil Came to St. Louis, author Troy Taylor explains that the Rituale Romanum was written at the behest of Pope Paul V in 1614 and with some minor clarifications added in 1952 and again in 1999. The exorcism rite is still in use today. We've covered possession and exorcism before, specifically in reference to our three-part July 2017 series on a young German woman named Annalisa Michel, Her case was fraught with the possibility of misdiagnosed mental illness and the priest and others involved were even put on trial after she died from the attempt to rid her of possession. Our episodes on Annalisa led to our own enlightenment on a condition known as anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, an illness that produces symptoms remarkably similar to ones described by those thought to be possessed. In fact, our show on that wound up literally saving a listener's life. She came on to discuss it in a follow-up episode early in 2019 called Sarah and the Spider Woman. Regardless of its unfortunate outcome, the Annalisa Michel case also inspired the exorcism of Emily Rose. But did you know that there was a confirmed case at the heart of the exorcist as well? A case so shocking that even skeptical eyewitnesses could find no suitable explanation for what they personally observed. <laughs>
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends, I'm Scott Philbrook and this is Forrest Burgess. One of the artifices
1: of Satan is to induce men to believe that he does not exist. Another, perhaps equally fatal, is to make them fancy that he is obliged to stand quietly by and not to meddle with them if they get into true silence. Quakerism examined by John Wilkinson, 1836.
2: Join us tonight for part one of our multi-part Halloween special series on the real-life story that inspired William Peter Blatty to write The Exorcist. And we're back. Oh, nice. A little Halloween spook there. And it's no, that's up, huh?
1: when my family goes back to the all-you-can-eat buffet, that's how I introduce ourselves to the cashier, yes. Oh, gotcha. All right. Because well, it strikes fear in the entire staff that I'm, <laughs> that I'm back.
2: Well, I don't know how spooky that is, folks, but we do have a spooky series coming up here for you for Halloween, so we're glad you could join us tonight. Just quickly, if you didn't already hear our special announcement on the feed, which, by the way, you should check those out when we release them, even if they're short. Usually, it's got something juicy in it. We do have some Halloween-themed merch in the store, if you haven't been in a while, including hoodies and t-shirts, and for the first time ever, at the suggestion of our editor and recent second-time mother, we now have Astonishing Legends onesies with our regular logo. So check those out. They are pretty cute. Oh, and thanks to Global Bottlenecks in Inventory, we cannot keep our usual promises on shipping ETAs, so bear with us. If you order them, we will get them to you, and they are on sale in the store now. Well, and
1: lastly, we want to give a shout-out to a friend and former guest of the show, Robert Crutt. He came on our show back in 2016 to discuss the rubyat of Omar Khayyam. Robert is an award-winning published poet and teacher at UC Santa Barbara, and he has a brand-new book of poetry
2: out called... Watch Me Trick Ghosts. He's just an amazing talent, and we really enjoy his poetry. Listen to this description from the publisher, Cod Hill Press. Robert Crutts' poetry collection, Watch Me Trick Ghosts, offers an immersion into the sublime, enveloping the reader in a shroud of welcome terror. Fusing narratives of ordinary life with flashes of otherworldly awe, Crutts' speaker serves as guide and protector while we venture down darkened streets, through empty buildings, and even into a forest grown out of grief. The lines of these poems haunt with remarkable clarity. A Coffin is a Battery states that Fine hairs of stray electricity twitch in wind. And when you come looking, I am the wires. Whether through surreal imagery or storylines lifted from our strangest dreams, Watch Me Trick Ghosts has a chill to rival the most ravishing gothic novel and the simmer of film noir. Mary Bittinger, author of Department of Elegy. You can find the book
1: at codhill.com. That's C-O-D-H-I-L-L dot And we have a link to it in our show notes as well. So head on over and check that out.
2: All right, it is time to get into the gripping legend of the real-life case that inspired William Peter Blatty to write The Exorcist. The story of The Exorcist. Everyone probably thinks they know it. Some folks might have known that it was inspired by a real and troubling case, but I'm betting a lot didn't. I actually didn't know that before we started looking into this. I thought it was pure fiction, to be honest. Really? Yeah, but you know, I'm not from St. Louis. My, I have a very good Catholic friend from St. Louis who was like, "Oh yeah, we, you know, it's a real story," and we'll actually be hearing some of his thoughts on it as we yeah. as we move forward. But. Much as you know about Lydia's Bridge. Yeah, exactly. I never heard of it. Of course, they'd never made a best selling book or movie (laughs) about Lydia's Bridge. That's true. It's basically a short story. But (laughs) but anyway, (laughs) like all astonishing legends, the more time that passes since the story was told, the more misinformation creeps in. And there's a lot of that going on with this story, which we're going to talk about. It's hard to cut through all that, but anyone who listens to us knows that's what we like to do. And there's not a ton of investigators out there that we feel take the same deep dive approach that we do or that try to separate fact from fiction when it comes to legends of this type or any type, really. There's a handful of them, though, and we're fortunate to have met and interviewed several of them on the show. We call lots of them friends. Not sure what they call us behind our backs, but James A. Willis (laughs) comes to mind. Brandon Misulo, Dr. Daniel Taylor, and certainly author and paranormal investigator Troy Taylor. Troy has to be one of the most prolific paranormal authors and investigators out there. He's written over 90 books. On Hold very, on. Hold on. Did you count those? Is that, is that in his bio? 90 books? If you go and click on him as an author on Amazon, it says it right there in his bio. 90 books. Wow. It actually, <laughs> I mean, you know what it said? Almost 90 books, but I figured the bio oh was old, gosh. so I changed it to over 90 books. Because, I mean, it's just ridiculous how many books are up there. I didn't feel like counting them. He also is a publisher. He's got his own publishing house. He's the founder of the Haunted America Conference, which I think is going into its 17th, 18th year or something like that. He's also a former guest of Astonishing Legends. Yes. Long-time listeners may remember him from our series on the Vallisca Axe Murders, which is a particularly troubling topic for me. He came on about that, and we discussed the research that he did while working on his book about that called Murdered in Their Beds. There have actually been more than a few times that we've gone to dive into a topic. Oh, like we found this juicy topic. No one's going to have mm-hmm. heard of this. And he's already written like four <laughs> books on it. So, and yeah. the books are definitive. That's the other thing.
1: This is what we discovered with Vallisca, in that there's a lot of facts and some newspaper clippings of the time and some original sources, but he's done all the heavy lifting you could say on this, but that's not all. We trust his research that's right. and his very thorough approach and objectivity for a lot of it. But that's only half of it because where we relied on Troy to hold our hands through Valiska and just as, as gruesome and that frankly still scares me. There's something about that story. I, I've tried to explain that and not very well last year when we did that for a Halloween topic and I convinced you to, to tackle it. And, and yeah, maybe the house isn't that haunted. It is horrifying. There's something that, that haunts me about that. Yeah. yeah it goes past
2: it, ghost story, that one.
1: It does. Yes. Yeah. And that was my point in introducing it. And, you know, I, maybe we're also jaded now. It's just like, eh, that is there's another family got wiped out. Who cares? There's something about that. But here's my point with that is that, yeah, you can talk about gruesome details, this and that. What Troy did was add a really heartfelt human narrative to the story yes. and the story that these are real people. They're not just some names that you hear in a true crime podcast for gruesome titillation. These people had a whole lives and, and a family and futures and just how that story kind of came together and it really gave it life. And that's what's happened this time as well with this story of the St. Louis exorcism is that this isn't just a bunch of gruesome details or some far out kind of things that may or may not have happened. This is a real person who lived in a real family. And imagine, as we always say, if that happened to you. I know it's hard to do that, but once you put yourself in there, that's sometimes
2: the really horrifying part of it. Here's the other thing about Troy. Aside from the books and the conferences and the the one-man show, he also hosts a plethora of haunted events where they're going to places, they're taking folks to places, they're also doing live streams at certain different places. We're actually hoping to attend one of these ourselves. We'll let you know more about that in the next part of the series. But it's very, very cool. And you can actually glean a lot about his personality and approach to the paranormal from this introduction at his website that I love. This is right on the webpage there. Author Troy Taylor and the staff from American Hauntings have been taking guests behind the walls of haunted locations since 1993 with one simple approach, ghost hunts without all of the clutter. Our investigations are not overcrowded meet and greets with so-called celebrities, but an authentic opportunity to let our guests experience the unexplained. We're not gonna waste your time with autograph sessions and that kind of nonsense, and we're not gonna make posters to show you how cool we are or pose for photos in matching black t-shirts that are a size too small. Instead, we're going to offer you the chance to actually investigate a location for possible evidence of lingering spirits. If you're interested in a real ghost hunt without all the distractions, then these are the events for you. Ghost hunts. No hype, no distractions, just the paranormal. Mm. I I love the the no-nonsense approach, and also he's trending away from the cult of personality that often worms its way into paranormal personalities, shall we say. But as Forrest said- we're Hey, sh- hey now, I, I hope to be one of those paranormal personalities one day. Hey, you got more fans than I do. So no, you're I, ahead I, of me, I, so. gotta,
1: I, I have to do a lot of exercising and they fit into one of those black t-shirts.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, We've, so forget it. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, as Forrest was saying earlier, the reason we're sharing this is because we're in touch with Troy about covering this topic and we wanted to lean on his book, The Devil Came to St. Louis. Uncensored, the true story of the 1949 exorcism, published by his company, American Hauntings, Inc., I-N-K, with a new fourth edition that came out in 2021 with startling new information and conclusions in it, including the real name of the boy at the center of the story, who is known as Roland Doe. Troy told us we were free to share whatever we wanted from his work and we could reach out to him with any questions we had, which we've already done a few times. And armed with that, as well as a ton of other wide ranging research, we aim to present the most accurate form of this story We can tonight, keeping in mind that our research is cursory. His has been going on for decades. Now, Troy points out at the beginning of his book, and, and we've seen this before, that the story of the boy known for quite some time as Roland Doe, or simply the letter R in a lot of publications, has become bloated with misinformation, conspiracy theories, and blatant lies. He goes on to add that he promised not to reveal any personal details of the boy or his family as long as the boy, now a man obviously, was alive. Well, in May of 2020, Roland Doe passed away, and with the fourth edition of The Devil Came to St. Louis, Troy revealed a trove of new information that he had previously withheld about the case, including the young man's name. He relied heavily on a journal colloquially known by people who follow this story as The Exorcist's Diary that many people have now seen, but for decades, Troy also did deep research and spoke with eyewitnesses, including one of the last living ones in 2014 who passed away just a few months later. So as we get into the story, we need to set the stage a little bit about exorcisms and possession. And if you're new to our show, then maybe this is a newish concept for you in terms of astonishing legends and even folklore tales. But if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that we've talked about this stuff. As Forrest has said in the cold open tonight, we covered possession more than a few times. Our series, The Devil and Annalisa Michel," The Sludge Entity, Sarah and the Spider Woman. That's just our own history. There's other famous cases, of course, thousands of them. Troy mentions several in his book, but there was one that Forrest has brought up several times on our show that I wanted to talk about a little bit tonight, and that's the Latoya Ammons case. Yeah, that case is another one that kind
1: of haunts me personally, because it wasn't 1949. It wasn't all that long ago. We're talking about uh, 2011 when the case started. So it was very well documented. Yes. And you could tell that family was terrorized by something and they weren't making it up. They're not looking for attention. I read a lot of articles about them when they came up. Certainly a lot of people have pointed us to articles and, and the case itself. And when you do read them and you see the interviews, something was going on. And that's the basis of tonight's tale about Roland Doe or R, or as we'll know, Ronnie, in that you may not believe everything that's going on, but something unexplainable is happening. And in this case, this is Gary, Indiana. This story is something in common with the conjuring legend that we recently shared. So check this out. Swarms of black flies on a screened-in porch in December in bitter cold temperatures, and they couldn't get rid of them That sound familiar? Yeah. We were talking about that. And I believe we've had some uh, exterminator listeners.
2: Yes. They were talking
1: were talking about how that can kind of happen. And somebody who wasn't an exterminator say, well, they might get trapped in the walls and the warmth of the inside of the house compared to the
2: outside basically brought him to life or something. But yes, swarms of black flies. Again, and what we'll learn, and it's the Catholic Church's position, we'll learn a little bit about this in this series too, is like, it's never just the one thing. It's the combination of events happening at the same time. Yeah, the flies could happen. Exactly. These (laughs) other things could happen. But when they're all happening at the same time, that's when you start to you need to step back and take a look at what the colors on the canvas are showing you the big picture. Yeah. We often talk about this, like how many coincidences are too many
1: in that I, you and I were talking about Lance Henriksen starring in millennium and in the Halloween episode, I believe I think it was dedicated to Halloween. Let's just say there is a ton of coincidences and weird things connected to someone who investigates the supernatural and paranormal and, and profiles horrible people, and that all these things are happening, and it's got to be a message. So it is like some dark force saying, I've got my eye on you, and it doesn't matter if you try, as we said in the quote, find true silence in that, I'm not going to raise my head up, I'm not going to say anything, I'll be fine. It goes to that other saying we like, Not believing in the devil doesn't protect you from him. Right. So these people certainly weren't looking for anything. And that was my point, though, about Lance is that after so many coincidences, you got to wonder like, okay, the string of things happening in itself is impossible. This has to be a message, there has to be meaning in here. So in the Ammons case, although things started out being connected to the house itself, the property, the space, the land, eventually whatever was there went after Ms. Ammons' children. And I remember one description of the, I think there was a seven-year-old who tried to strangle his brother. There was a nine-year-old who described what it felt like to be killed over and over again. They took one of them to the hospital. And this is an event that made it into the papers and the description during the interview with the family caseworker, and I believe a psychiatric nurse that was there, one of the boys runs up the wall and does a flip over the head of it's either the caseworker or the psychiatric nurse that was there, who immediately, upon seeing that, ran out of the room. Yeah. And a doctor was quoted as saying, No human can do that, what that little boy just did. So we have a link to that article, but I specifically remember that because they tried to get that caseworker. I believe to come back and talk about it. He just refused like, nah, yeah, I'm never going to talk to anybody about that again. Not even sure that would happen. And we're not talking about Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly and singing in the rain, doing that running up the wall dance move where you you run up and you kind of do a a backflip. This was partially onto the ceiling. If I remember correctly, like it just, it was impossible, but it happened. So Troy adds that the first exorcism by the Archdiocese of Gary, Indiana in 21 years was performed in this case by Reverend Michael Maginot. Three rituals happened, two in English and one in Latin, and that would be June of 2012. Yeah. So again, Reverend Maginot took good notes on this. It's very well recorded. It's very compelling. And it was recent. And with a lot of those elements, it makes you wonder even more. This is not a case that happened, as I said, in the 40s and 50s.
2: Yeah, and and Troy, it's funny because in his straightforward style, he actually goes on to point out that only one person actually wound up getting rich from Miss Ammon's story. A paranormal TV personality who bought the house Mm. and filmed a documentary in it before it was bulldozed. Uh, Troy goes on to list several other cases that all have highly unusual circumstances. Get his book to read about those. It's very compelling. I'm sure we'll accidentally be covering one of them in the future. There was one in there for us that I hadn't heard of that it's like, oh, I think we might have to drill down on this, which he hasn't Mm -hmm. written a book about that one yet. He's mentioned it, but maybe we can beat him to the punch. This is Alex. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Let's circle back to something that we said in the cold open. There's mental and physical health issues that present symptoms in a way that in the past has been associated with the idea of spiritual possession. We've touched on this before in our show, and this was not always acknowledged by the Catholic Church, but as time, history, and education has improved, that has changed. In The Devil Came to St. Louis, Troy talks about the Rituale Romanum. And as we stated before, this was written in 1614 under Pope Paul V, head of the Catholic Church from 1605 to 1621. Interestingly, I looked him up uh, because I didn't know a whole lot about him. During this time, Pope Paul V was the one who disallowed Galileo to teach the Copernican heliocentric doctrine as fact, meaning that the sun was the center of our solar system. But the Pope did offer. Galileo protection so long as he was alive. And Galileo used that in his defense when he went to trial in 1633, even though Pope Paul V had passed away 12 years earlier. I digress. Well, let's take a look at what the Rituale Romanum actually is. No, wait, it's too complicated. Let's just read the Wikipedia summary and then we'll get a little in the weeds (laughs) on the part we're concerned with. Okay. The Roman ritual or Rituale Romanum is one of the official ritual works of the Roman Rite of the Catholic Church. Rite, Rite. It contains all of the services which may be performed by a priest or deacon, which are not contained within either the Missale Romanum, the Pontificale Romanum, or the Ceremoniale Episcoporum. The book also contains some of the rites which are contained in only one of these books for convenience. When first ritual function books were written, the Sacramentary in the West and the Eucologian in the East, They contained all the priests and bishops part of whatever functions they performed, not only for the mass or divine liturgy, but also for the other sacraments, blessings, sacramentals, and rites of every kind as well. So that's the overview. Mm -hmm. So before we go further, we have to give a shout out to a Latin expert who literally answered a tweet request for help. His name is Anthony Gibbons, and I actually didn't ask him about any of the Latin I've done so far, so if I got that wrong, it's on me. We asked him about a pending term here, which is going to be obvious. He has a website called Ligonium, as well as uh, Twitter and Instagram accounts by the same name. It's L-E-G-O, like Lego, N-I-U-M. These are all super cool, and I just picked up a copy of his book by the same name, which, listen to this description. This book is called Lagonium. It is a Latin reader like no other. Ligonium is both a town and a tale. It is a town built entirely from Lego bricks and filled with an incredible cast of characters. There is a struggling artist, a bank manager, a police officer, a private detective, plus a suspicious character spotted on the roof of the town bank, and of course, Pico, the cat. And it is a tale told completely in Latin, with short sentences, a full range of grammatical structures, repetition of vocabulary hundreds of pictures, and an English translation for reference. There is a police chase, a trip to Pompeii, a talkative parrot, and a mysterious suitcase. Sounds like Somerton, man. Anyway, we have a link to where you can get this if you want your own copy in our show notes for this episode, but find and follow Ligonium. And thanks again, Anthony, for helping us out with this Latin, which he, if you haven't gathered by now, he teaches. So uh, we're probably still going to butcher it, but here we go. Within the Rituale Romanum is an 84-page document known as De Exorcismis et Supplicantio Nibus Quibustum, or of exorcisms and certain supplications. Within that are 23 pages dedicated to the great exorcism rite. Well done, sir. Thank you, and thank Anthony <laughs> Gibbons for, literally, we, I tweeted, and he was like, I can help you out, but it's 11.30 in the morning here. He was all the way in Sydney, Australia, and, we, and he hopped on our Zoom during this recording session and gave us a quick lesson, so it was awesome. And then we talked about Legos for 20 minutes. Anyway, <laughs> as we've already said, the Rituale Romanum was originally written in 1614, but it was revised in 1999 and lightly again in 2004, the, and the 1999 revision specifically as it relates to the exorcism, right, I should point out, was the one that emphasizes the importance of incorrectly identifying mental illness as demonic possession. Now, according to Wikipedia, this revision also, quote, removed several descriptions of Satan, which sat uncomfortably with the church's doctrine, and states that the devil is, quote, a spirit without body, without color, and without odor. Although taking many forms, Satan as a metaphysical or spiritual being exists without real physical attributes, but only the assumed forms, end quote. Which I thought was fascinating, Yeah, based on a whole bunch of things. But just the fact he's out there, it's out there, mm-hmm. it's not corporeal. Just keep that in mind. The 2004 revision of the Exorcism Rite had two chapters and two appendices, but we want to focus on the 1999 revision, which appears to have some controversy around it. We're going to save that for later in the series. But there's various stages to an exorcism, according to Father Malachi Martin, which a lot of people will have heard of. And we're going to come back to those as well as the story unfolds. But again, right now we want to focus on how you determine if the person in question is suffering from mental illness or maybe possessed. Listen to this excerpt from Troy's book, The Devil Came to St. Louis, on the revisions to the definition of possession and how to make sure you're not dealing with something different. This is from page 13 of the paper edition of his book. We have both paper and Kindle editions, so we'll be referring to those in varying stages here, but the pages are pretty close together. First of all, one should not assume that someone is possessed by a demon unless he shows signs that distinguish the possessed person from those who suffer from melancholy, mental illness, or some physical disease. The signs indicating the presence of a possessed person are as follows, speaking in an unknown tongue or understanding someone who speaks in a language unknown to the person, revelation of distant and unknown matters, manifestation of powers beyond one's natural age and condition, as well as other such matters, all of which, when taken together, compound such indications, kind of like compound interest. Here into economics. Uh, Basically, what you're saying here is you're doing all this stuff, you're really saving a lot of money, or you're really <laughs> possessed. You're super possessed. If you're speaking in foreign languages, you have knowledge right. of distant matters. You have are exhibiting strengths beyond your... And think about this, Forrest, right? I mean, it, it makes you think of the omniscient beings that we've encountered over the history of our show, yeah. the bell witch. We've never covered it, but Jeff the talking mongoose, these omniscient disembodied voices... And knowledge, and you're the one that has talked to me, or no, it was in the Bell Witch story, wasn't it, where there was knowledge of something going on in Europe? Yes, in the Bell Witch
1: story, there were reports that it could hear and repeat sermons that were happening simultaneously yes. in, in, in different churches, a case where somebody could a case. Oh, that was the person, I believe, who came from England to debunk this, left a believer, went back to Europe, and something was relayed to him that his parents said on the day that he was in, in the US. So that the Bell Witch had
2: shared the information on, yes. Right. Kate Batz's witch.
1: Yeah. And which shows either a sense of bilocation or omniscience. There's another interesting story that a listener on Twitter told us about. And also Michael Kish one of our, our great listeners and art contributors and now friend, and he talked about the wizard clip, which is another case that has a lot of weirdly similar elements to it to the bell witch, in that there was knowledge of sermons being said in different parts of location at the same
2: time, could repeat scripture back to the person accurately. And by the way, these are floating disembodied voices people are hearing.
1: Yes. But what you're talking about here, as far as the rules, (laughs) their rules, the Romanum rules, that there has to be several things going on for them to consider it, because any one of these singularly could be something else. there might be a, let's say another mundane explanation that they haven't figured out yet. We'll take some investigation to figure it out. But when you have all these things combined, I think that's what they're saying, like, okay, now something's going on here. It's powerful. We need to look into this, and that's really what a lot of these cases are about. like do we have to get involved, or could this be better helped with therapy from a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Is there another medical reason to this which should take precedence, or is this something beyond that which may require spiritual help? So not only are there rules, but of course, think about it. The Catholic Church, who's taken a lead on this, you could say, in an organized fashion for hundreds of years, have been witnessing strange behavior and cases and are pretty good at documenting it. And when you do that, you start to see patterns. And one pattern I notice with Troy's book and this case, and the bell witch, and the wizard clip, and Jeff the mongoose. What's happening here is it, it starts off small. Yeah. Same thing with the Fox sisters in their story. Same thing in the Watsika Wonder. Starts off small with little scratches. Maybe you hear some, some noises you think are rats or mice in the walls, or maybe a raccoon got in in the attic. And then there's knocking. And then there's moving of things. It progresses. It starts off very small. And that's what happens in this case as well. Yeah. Small things lead to bigger things. And in the case of the Bell Witch, which is a very, if you believe all that, is a very powerful phenomenon. Had a lot of energy, but it started off small. And when you interact with it, maybe it gives that thing, whatever that is, that force, that entity, more power and energy to operate with, and then it builds and it builds, and now several neighbors are involved, the whole town's involved, and when people are giving it that much energy, it can do some pretty wild things.
2: Yeah, it's like shutting down the power grid and the Ghostbusters. <laughs> You've just let dogs them all and out. cats living together. What Detroit actually adds in his book, shortly after the prior passage here, he says even the church became open to the idea of other sources for activity, as noted by Monsignor Carlo Balducci in 1959. He made a point of saying that parapsychology has widened the possibility of things like psychokinesis being interpreted as demonic in origin. When these kinds of events are combined with mental illness or a medical condition, it becomes more difficult to determine what is an authentic possession and what is not. With that said, the exorcist's first task becomes confirming that the victim is possessed by a Christian devil or one that exists only by the permission of God. That way, he knows the demon is subject to the authority of the priest. Although it's never clearly stated, I assume that another kind of demon would require an exorcist or shaman of some other faith. So, here's what's fascinating about this. And, Forrest, you and I talked about this a little bit offline in preparation for this show. And I wanted to talk about it more with you is that, I mean, granted, it's 1959, it's a little while back. The the Catholic Church, as you said, they've been collecting records for a long time, centuries, right? They've seen everything, Mm -hmm. they've got all this information, and they're working from that point that is the point, it's kind of like after we did the show a few years and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done trying to prove something strange is happening here. And I'm, I'm done trying to capture the ghost on tape. Now I'm wanting to say, okay, something is definitely happening that's outside my perception of reality. What is it? It's the same thing they're doing here. They're used to all the weird stuff. So they're like, well, you know, it's not always an exorcism. Sometimes it's somebody moving stuff with his mind and he's also mentally ill they're already operating in a different box from the rest of the world. Right. They're not coming into it saying, well, this isn't reality. This is inexplicable. We can't, there's not other dimensions. There's not, they're not even, they're so far past that point. They're like, no, exorcism is real, but all this other stuff, this might be it too. We got to be careful. We got to make sure we're chasing the right dragon here. Yeah. Logically, there could
1: be a bunch of things going on. I've always said that. It's never one thing, but as humans, we like to train our minds in that path because it's easier to wrap your head around than telekinesis being real. Okay, so we say, of course, mental illness is real. That's science, that's medicine, that's physicality. But all this other stuff that's extrasensory that is outside of your mind, and and that's what we talked about in the Watsika Wonders as far as part two is concerned with spiritism and the top psychologists of the day, of their era, not being woo-woo wackos, that these are people in the top of their field, but they're also giving credence to possibly some kind of telekinesis or telepathy being a real thing. Right. William James. So yeah, but they they didn't go as far as saying they didn't believe that you're actually maybe talking to a deceased spirit. It's more likely that this person is using mental telepathy to do amazing feats. And that's what's happening in the cases they considered. In this one, We're talking about a bunch of strange things that are happening, and what you just described here by the church is that they want to eliminate all these other things first. Is it strictly mental illness? Is there a combination between that and maybe something that's more graspable, like telekinesis or mental telepathy, although a lot of people don't buy into that either, psychic abilities, a lot of people think that's bunk, but is that one thing that's going on, but it's not a demon? Because once you involve the demon, then it's a whole other set of rules. Now we got a problem on our hands. Well,
2: again, it's interesting. Can you imagine an exorcist coming into a situation, trying to diagnose it or assess it, and then saying, there's definitely furniture flying around here. You've certainly got a problem, but this person has anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis and psychokinetic powers, so we're not going to get involved. (laughs) It's psycho. This is outside. This is, you need to call somebody else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, a lot of people believe that, or they're willing
1: to go that route where you talk about a poltergeist activity happening with younger people. Yeah, generally people who uh, have a lot of emotion attached to them, and in that state, and somehow that fuels a lot of this ability that most people don't even believe in. Right. Yet things fly off shelves. Yet things move and rattle and vibrate. And what we'll see here with tonight's case, a lot of this is going on. So as we tell the story, you're going to have to decide for yourselves what's actually happening by What you're willing to accept? Where's your line that you will not cross? And how close to that line are you willing to go to
2: understand what's happening here? Well, the main thing that we definitely want to touch on, and as I said, we've touched on it before on the show, is that there's no question that in the past, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people with mental illness were incorrectly treated as though they were possessed. And that led to ongoing problems and even death at times. But what if? What if there were cases out there? where what was happening was beyond the scope of any known mental or physical illness. Do those cases exist? Is the story of Roland Doe such a legend? All right, so now that we've talked a little bit about exorcism and we've set the stage for how the Catholic Church looks at it and what was going on at this particular place in time for this particular story, let's talk about the boy at the time at the center of this case known as Roland Doe. And even today, if you go to the Wikipedia page for this, it's the exorcism of Roland Doe. There's no other name listed there aside from another pseudonym, which is Robbie Mannheim. And folks, that's D-O-E, as in John
1: Doe. So, of course, if you're not from the U.S., maybe you don't know this, but they'll use the name D-O-E, John Doe or Jane Doe where they don't know the identity of someone. Somebody's
2: unidentified,
1: that's right. Yeah, exactly. So that's not an actual real name. It's just yeah. Roland, and then we don't, we don't want to say or know his last name.
2: Well, I'm also going to read this from the Wikipedia page entitled Exorcism of Roland Doe. It's got its own page there, which is filled with misinformation, by the way. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to read it from, it's not a very long page, but it's, it's not right, it needs to be revised. However, let's just read this little paragraph. In the late 1940s, in the United States, priests of the Roman Catholic Church performed a series of exorcisms on an anonymous boy, documented under the pseudonym Roland Doe, or Robbie Mannheim. The 14-year-old boy, born circa 1935, was the alleged victim of demonic possession, and the events were recorded by the attending priest, Raymond J. Bishop. Subsequent supernatural claims surrounding the events were used as elements in William Peter Blatty's novel, The Exorcist, in 1973. A couple things about that. First of all, the novel, The Exorcist came out in 71. The movie came out in 73. So even in that opening paragraph, that isn't right. There's a, And the whole page has got a whole bunch of stuff that we'll be able to show is, is not necessarily what happened, thanks to research of uh, Troy Taylor and some others. But that's kind of the pop cultural overview of the anonymous boy known as Roland Doe. But Forrest, who was Rolando really? And, and by the way, we have to give our nod to Troy for... Actually, he had this information for a long time and had did not share it out of respect for the family and the boy at the center of the case.
1: Indeed. And in Troy's earlier editions, the name was withheld. So the one that we have recently written is also subtitled Uncensored because he names names and he includes information that was withheld out of respect. So we're going off of newer information being released, and he did a very good job of giving you the full story while still being objective and respectful. But who was the real boy behind the center of all this activity, demonic or not? Well, Roland Doe, or Robbie Mannheim was in fact Ronnie Hunkler. So another thing that Troy brings up in an effort to correct the story technically which was interesting, is that in the beginning of the section of this book here in the middle, talking about the boy and the family and the beginnings of the story, is that he points out, Troy does, many folks would say that the story of what's become known as a St. Louis exorcism had its beginnings in Cottage City, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. But if you consider that the parents of the young boy in question, Ronald Ronnie E. Hunkler, so his full name is Ronald E. Hunkler, but he went by Ronnie. Well, Ronnie's parents met and married in St. Louis, so technically you could say it started there and then went to College City and then came back to St. Louis. So Ronald Ronnie E. Hunkler was born in St. Louis on June 1st, 1935. Ronnie's father Edwin was 25 years old when he met his mother Odell, age 23, in St. Louis, and they married on June 16th, 1926. Edwin Hunkler, the father, he worked as a machinist at Frank Adam Electric in Cottage City with Odell's father, James Coppage. And that's probably how he was introduced to Odell, who he would end up marrying. So paint that picture again. He's working with his father in law at Frank Adam Electric in Cottage City. Ronnie's favorite aunt, Matilda, or Tilly, as she was known, was Edwin's sister, of course. She married another employee of Frank Adam Electric eugene Hendricks jr in 1918 so that happened back then there 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 wasn't any swipe left or swipe right <laughs> is that there's you work with somebody you get to know their family it's like hey i got a sister or i got a daughter you know she's just your type and and that's how people got together it was more out of expediency and ease and logistics than it was like well let me see what's happening uh, around the world by uh texting this other person yeah right <laughs> like no, you just, you you met and you fell in love with the person who was like right there. So right, right. That's the way it worked back then. Well, Edwin Hunkler moved his family to Cottage City, Maryland in 1939, and there he continued working as an electrical machinist. Odell's mother and Ronnie's grandmother, Anna Coppage, left St. Louis to go live with her daughter, son-in-law Edwin, and grandson Ronnie at their home at 3807 40th Avenue in Cottage City. And now I guess apparently, at least if you check the maps here, it's considered Brentwood, Maryland. And she did this after her husband died in 1940. So in 1904, the town of Cottage City was laid out as a town called Highlands between the towns of Colmar Manor and Brentwood, one mile from Washington, D.C.'s northeast border. Over time, 300 one-story working class cottages were built, and this led to the area being called Cottage City because of all the cottages. And they were perfect for working class families just starting out who could afford something and working for the war effort at the time. So that's what happened really to the Hunkler family. That's their story as well as for so many other Americans. Edwin Hunkler worked as a machinist during the World War II manufacturing effort. Odell, his wife, was a homemaker, while grandmother Anna Coppage was really quite involved with the family's lives and home. She was a very central figure in not only their family life, but in this story that's about to unfold. So Anna was native German, and she was said to not have spoken English very well. So it was her second language, and she often depended on Odell to translate for her. And that does figure a little bit about what's going on from Anna's perspective and what's being translated, especially to the clergy who are taking notes about all the strange goings on. And another important factor about Anna and her daughter Odell was that they were devout Lutherans and regularly attended St. Stephen's Lutheran Church. So Ronnie grew up as an only child in this home, and he had a troubled childhood with this overbearing mother and grandmother. And at this point, the nearest relatives were still at St. Louis, so they're a little bit sequestered from their main family tree, you could say. But at least the family on his father's side were close relatives, so they went to visit them often, which is probably how Ronnie became so close to who would become his favorite aunt, Aunt Tilly. Nowadays, it's about 13 hours by car and about 831 miles from Cottage City, Maryland, to St. Louis. So that's another point that Troy makes. Back then, in the early 40s, that would be a lot more travel. That would be a lot more difficult. <laughs> Cars, you didn't go as fast in the interstates as you did now. You had to rely on a lot of secondary roads. It's a bit of an effort, but they did go visit their family in St. Louis. So, but it wasn't like they were just down the block. Well, in that case, Aunt Tilly provided a welcome escape from Ronnie's home life, which was, I imagine, just very overbearing, devout mother and grandmother, and very controlling, I imagine. And he's the focus because he's the only child. But when he went to visit Aunt Tilly, this provided an escape. They really got along. There were some hints, as Troy points out, that there was something inappropriate going on between Aunt Tilly and Ronnie, but there's no evidence of that, and it's, it's pretty unlikely. But people want to make those connections, yeah.
2: Yeah, Troy was pretty adamant. There was like, I just, I don't see anything going on here. And also, I just want to say, as someone who has Several aunts and uncles that I was super fond of and and my parents have been divorced since I was two It was you know, it was a relatively amicable split and they were still friendly, but you know I was flying around different states visiting different family members and you know, I had an aunt that I, I were a few of them that in from different yeah. sides of the family that were my favorite people. This one, my aunt Florence loved her, lived in Mesa, Arizona. And when I would go to her house, she would have candy corn for me. Oh, nice. Yeah. And we would play croquet in the backyard. And I was like, I didn't even know what croquet was. I was like, oh, this is so cool. I'll be out in the desert, you know, and in my other. Favorite aunt lives here in North Carolina. She's yes only nine years older than me, so she's always been like a big sister. You have these folks in your life, and I can relate to you know, especially if he was having an uncomfortable or well, unpleasant yeah. home life. Yeah. It's it's the person that lets you do whatever you want or gets you.
1: Yeah, and and think about it with your own family. There's a lot of times peripheral relatives are more fun than the mother and father raising you.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, and as a parent now, I would say, yeah, because they don't have to do any of the disciplining or or the consequences well, of, of letting you do whatever you want. So. Yes, that's why grandparents spoil their grandkids. That's right. In this case, though, pay attention to
1: the family dynamic because that really plays into what goes on here and the possible drama certainly within the family and what was said about all them afterward because it all plays in and if you start looking at personalities and paying attention here you can see how this unfolds well unfortunately ronnie didn't have a very you could say it was a normal childhood in the arrangement certainly a, a typical family unit but he didn't have a very happy And normal childhood, as gauged by most people, you could say, because of this arrangement here. And the way he was described by friends is a little different, as we'll see in a bit here. But in 1947, Ronnie entered the seventh grade at Bladensburg Junior High after attending Cottage City Elementary School. By January of 1949, though, he was 13 years old. And in the middle of the eighth grade, when he was taken out of school and he would remain out for several months, and this may be the first thing that happens in Ronnie's life, which is a major disjointing, you could say, kicked off the path and the and the rails of growing up normally. And there's a reason he was taken out of school.
2: Yes, and we're gonna talk about that in a little bit. All right, well, the first thing to understand here is that there is actually two versions of a good portion of this story. The, the middle part of the story has been told a couple of different ways. And there's some details there that a lot of folks have probably heard and others that folks haven't heard. But according to Troy Taylor, one of the popular versions of the chain of events that took place isn't true. And it's not just Troy. Troy's relying on other researchers, which we'll talk about a little bit. But, but he dug down on this and put this stuff into his book, The Devil Came to St. Louis. So there's also a bit of a complex timeline to understand involving the geography where the family was when this unfolded. And it's easy to get overwhelmed with all the details, but we're going to try and make it as digestible as we can. But you know us, we also like to cover all the bases.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Troy spent over 20 years collecting all the facts, coming through records, interviewing people who were still alive that he could. So he has put the time in.
2: Yeah, and we've put almost 10 days in on it now at this point, I think.
1: Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> almost right there with him, right. <laughs> but no, that's why we give uh, him so much deference in, in, yes. as far as getting the story straight. And when he lays it out, it also makes logical sense. What yes, he's saying. So,
2: absolutely. Yeah. And his books, this is the other thing. A lot of times we come across these authors, other ones who will remain unnamed and don't actually don't wind up getting mentioned on the show but there's a lot of authors who work in this realm who self-publish and they do things like Troy's doing here and they're not great writers but Troy Troy is these books are compelling they're real page turners i find myself having a hard yeah. time putting them down even if i've got other things i should be doing
1: it's know <laughs> the one the one major problem i had with this book and covering it and gleaning facts from it is that it was so filled with facts. I was taking too many notes. Yeah, <laughs> This can't be a 14-part show. No. <laughs> but, but I will say, you know, it's funny with his podcast on Villisca last year, it was over like 14 parts or something. It was It was quite a bit because yes. he's got the whole thing laid out and it is a tremendous story as is this. But this is the other thing that I love about it is Dispelling the Myths. Yeah. And we're going to try and do that. And don't worry, it doesn't make it any less scary.
2: No, it doesn't. And also the other thing I find myself doing with his books is highlighting literally every word. I'm like, I don't know if there's a point. <laughs> I'm, I'm highlighting all the yeah. pages. You, know, you can highlight just all read the, the book on it. Yeah.
1: Yes, just read the book on air.
2: It does force you to come back and say, all right, we got to leave this out. We got to leave that out, which is actually helping me right. with my discipline a little bit. So thank you, Troy. <laughs> anyway, getting back to his research here, one of the things that I did think was interesting, he talks about the first time that the story of what happened to Ronnie Hunkler appeared in print. And the earliest thing he could find was a copy of Fate magazine, but that was from January of 1975, which is two years after the movie came out. So there's, yes. there's not a print version, I think, that he could find that predated the movies, which is important because at this point, the movie's already starting to taint the story a little bit in terms of the what really happened now getting intermingled with this fictional take on it. So- that's something to keep in mind anytime one of these stories gets taken off and made into a movie whether it's conjuring or whatever else the details start commingling, and then the next thing you know people are remembering things that didn't happen or telling it in ways that it didn't happen so and that goes back to even before movies and books like when we talk about yeah. i always go back to the jersey devil that was a war of print and in that war of print mm-hmm. things got introduced that weren't necessarily part of whatever the original impetus was for the story Right. And that's a different
1: thing, though, because, you know, Rich Hannum will tell you specifically, it's like, yeah, don't go to the movie, The Mothman Prophecies, for the details on the event, because that's not what the movie's about. Right. The movie is about how do you take all these weird things and make a narrative out of it that's entertaining and its own thing. And that's what he did, I think, very successfully. Yes. But yeah, you don't go to that movie. It's not a documentary. Right. (laughs) That's the point. Right. Right. Exactly.
2: Well, there's a couple of important things to know right at the outset here as we get into this. And as we just said earlier, although Ronnie was born in St. Louis and the story ends in St. Louis, the paranormal activity, if that's what it was, started Mm -hmm. in Cottage City, Maryland, while the family was living there in 1949. And then it continued as they relocated what they thought was temporarily back to St. Louis. One of the important characters that we need to talk about who we just mentioned a little bit ago was Aunt Tilly or Matilda. She was very important to Ronnie, as we said, but Ronnie's mother and grandmother weren't so fond of her for whatever reason, and there seemed to be an effort to lay at least the initial events on Tilly, and on top of that, they insisted that the exorcist's diary that the Jesuits were keeping have her name in it as a possible source of trouble. But the dates in this diary, Troy Taylor found, show that the strange things began happening before Aunt Tilly even died, 11 days before she died, actually. And we're certainly not experts on being a ghost, but generally we're thinking that one of the first steps to haunting someone is being dead. (laughs) Since you brought up that point, I will say I have a very, very
1: close friend who saw a loved one, let's say, a couple of weeks before they passed away.
2: Well, that's a crisis apparition. I think Brandon Mass Yeah, would say that's, that's what I'm crisis saying apparition.
1: That's what I'm saying. So the point here You're is that my you and I I'm, <laughs> not at all. It's still funny. I'm laughing on the inside. I'll <laughs> laugh later too. No, we were talking about this. I want to make this clear because we're just speculating here on the nature of the the relationship, but what you have and what the book points out is that you have two overbearing parental authority figures, Odell and Anna. over ronnie yeah odell his mother Anna, the grandmother, both very strictly religious, very overbearing, very controlling, we're assuming. And Aunt Tilly may have been the fun one. Yes. And that's what was a relief when he goes to visit her and she's full of fun and lets him do things they won't they wouldn't even consider. They're pointing to her as like, no, oh, she's the cause of it. Yeah. The thing is, is that they may have been, again, this is speculation, that jealous a little bit, that he loved Aunt Tilly and he felt more of a bond with her, perhaps, and loved being in her company. More than his own mother and grandmother.
2: All right, because there wasn't all that stifling baggage of overbearing religion and the other discipline that they were constantly trying Mm -hmm. to... See, that's what I was saying. The aunts and uncles have it easy. They don't have to do any of that. They can just be the fun people. (laughs) Right. So listen to this description of the very first events that took place in this case. This is from January of 1949, and we're reading from page 64 of the fourth print edition of Troy Taylor's book, The Devil Came to St. Louis. On January 15th, The first unusual
1: sounds were reported by the Hunklers in their home on 40th Avenue. They were scratching sounds that seemed to come from inside of the walls and ceilings. Initially, Odell believed that the house was infested with mice and contacted an exterminator, but he could find no sign of rodents. To make matters worse, his efforts seemed to accentuate the problem. Other sounds followed like the plodding footsteps in the hallway and the rattling sound of dishes in the kitchen cabinets. They vibrated with slight tremors as if a large truck was passing down the street. But, of course, there were no
2: vehicles outside. But those sounds and more are documented in the very first entry in The Exorcist's Diary. Again, this all taking place in Maryland at Ronnie's family home, at 3807 40th Avenue in Cottage City. This home just changed hands, by the way. Yeah. Before you email us and say, hey, somebody just bought the house. They <laughs> did, and we might talk about it a little bit more as this series continues, but I read one of the articles that was funny. They were like, we had no idea. They bought the house and mm. then found out later that the story started there. Um, but the, the people seem, at least for now, very amenable because they're like, people are coming by and taking pictures. I think after they're there a few years, they're going to start to get annoyed with that. Because <laughs> I'll tell you, when I went, I used to go by the Brady Bunch house. That was near me in LA. Yes. And <sighs> those folks came out with like a broomstick when you stopped.
1: <laughs> in front of them. Yeah, I don't uh, blame them. Kind of like the people that led their home to be Walter White's house and Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah, right. Re- maybe regretted that decision.
2: Morris and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors.
1: I'm Mark Rayland. Let's get back to the show.
2: We're going to note here that The Exorcist Diary goes back and forth between using his real name and then referring to him simply as R, because they were trying to protect his identity back then. But this all starts January 15th. Listen to this from page 67 of Troy Taylor's book. A dripping noise was heard by Ronald and his grandmother in the grandmother's bedroom. This noise continued for a short time, and then the picture of Christ on the wall shook as if the wall had been bumped. By the time the parents of R. returned home, there was a definite scratching sound under the floorboards near the grandmother's bed. From this night on, the scratching was heard every night about 7 o'clock and would continue until midnight. The family thought that the scratching was caused by a rodent of some kind, an exterminator was called in who placed chemicals under the floorboards, but the scratching continued and became more distinct when people stomped on the floor. Hmm. I guess that went on for about three nights. And then the family heard something even stranger. They said it sounded like marching feet and beating drums, and it would go up and down the length of the mattress. And right. Forrest, you had made an observation about that particular sound yesterday when we were talking about this off the air.
1: See, at this point, the, the setup here is that Odell, Ronnie's mother, and Ronnie himself, and I think Anna, the grandmother, they're all in bed together. I don't know if they're sleeping, if Ronnie was scared. Willy
2: Wonka style. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> Not feet to feet and cabbage soup and all that. But they're all in bed. And I think here's another interesting aside, if we don't get to it. Ronnie's father is not heard of much. He is involved in these activities. Yes. But he doesn't really comment much at all on what's going on here. But he was there. Right. But in this case, it's the three of them in bed. And what was described in the Hunkler bedroom that night sounded a lot like what Carolyn Perrone or Perrin described going on in the Conjuring House the witches chanting and the sound of fire. Of course, it's not as dramatic, but they are hearing something that sounds like organized marching by their bed, which is weird. Just the marching and the drum beats, because it does remind me of we are legion. Yes.
2: I was just reading some stuff about that today, which I, I'm going to say for a later part in the series here, but legion was a military term. This came from one of our researchers in the ARC. They they did a fabulous job on this yeah. series. He was talking about how that 6,000, that represents 6,000 people, a legion at the time. Right. Well, like you said, the family was making sure that this stuff went into the exorcist diary that the Jesuits would later be creating. They're not doing it yet, so this information had to be imparted later. During this time, apparently Odell wanted to determine whether or not this was Aunt Tilly causing the problems, and she invited the entity to knock three times if it was. And according to the family, I guess the Odell and her mother Anna, the three knocks came. Then they asked again for confirmation, but this time for four knocks. And again, that happened. The only problem with this is if this was maybe January 15th or 16th or even 17th or 18th, Tilly didn't die till the 26th. Right. So Troy makes a a very important valid point here that people need to understand though. At this time in the story, as I just said, no Jesuit priests were present. This information was all related to them by the family after they got to St. Louis. For Troy... This doesn't mean that nothing happened by any stretch. There are literally over four dozen witnesses that would eventually come forward with signed statements about this case who all believed it to be an actual possession in the end. But in Cottage City, Maryland alone, 14 witnesses reportedly verified the events that took place there. Still, that's according to the Exorcist Diary, which was written later by the Jesuits based on things that Odell and Anna were telling them. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. For now, we just want to make it clear that Troy Taylor is making clear that with regard to the incidents that took place in Maryland, it's only the family's word about some of what happened. And we could talk more about whether or not they may have mixed up some dates or they may have, in fact, interacted with something that lied to them about who or what it was. We'll talk more about that later. But it's you know that comes back to something we've mentioned before, the siren call of hungry ghosts, the trickster. It might say, Yeah, I'm Auntie, sure. I'm Aunt Tilly. Does that freak you out? I'll be Aunt Tilly. So that could be happening. <laughs> oh, she's still alive? Doesn't matter. That's who yeah, I am. Right, so there's right. that kind of thing. Maybe there there was knocking or rapping. When you get into that omniscient communication and interaction with these things, I believe, if you believe any of this at all or that there was anything paranormal or supernatural going on here, I believe that you might not be talking to who you think you're talking or interacting with. Right. It's it's supernatural hitchhiking. Yeah, Ooh, that's yeah, yeah, that's good. Supernatural hitchhiking. Well, listen to these ongoing problems as described by the family to the Jesuits for the Exorcist Diary. This is on page sixty-nine of Troy Taylor's book.
1: One night, Ronnie's mattress began to shake and vibrate so hard that it slid off the wooden bed frame and on the floor. When the shaking stopped, the edges of the bed covers were jerked out from under the mattress and lifted straight up off the surface of the bed. Quote as though held up by starch, end quote. When the family touched the stiffened comforter, it collapsed into place, and the bed looked normal again.
2: So this is the first of a long series of events related to the bed, or whatever bed he's in, and on its face you might think again, well, this is hearsay from the family without witnesses, but as the story progresses, even in Maryland, these kinds of things are witnessed by priests and others. All right, so what we have coming up here is an interesting situation because Troy talks about how when Ronnie was younger, three boys he grew up with spent a lot of time with him, the Cantor boys, C-A-N-T-O-R. Robert, being the oldest, is the source of the observation that, quote, beds in those days had wire springs and were on wheels. It would be easy to make them bounce and move around. He insisted that things can be exaggerated to make a story work. Father Halloran, however, was there when this happened. And he has something to say about it. And thanks to our friend, radio talk show host, Dave Glover of the Dave Glover Show on KMOX 98.7 FM in St. Louis, you're going to be able to hear Father Halloran's insights into this case. Dave interviewed Father Halloran himself 20 years ago, just before Halloran passed away. And he sent that interview to us to share portions of it with you. Mm -hmm. But that's for next week. Anyway, coming back to the Cantor brothers, Robert's younger brother, Joseph, was Ronnie's best friend for years. Mm-hmm. And Troy indicated that Robert said that Ronnie's mom was obsessively religious, as was his grandmother, who primarily spoke German and very little English. And Robert Cantor felt that she was influencing the situation and the realities of it. His younger brother, Joseph, describes Ronnie's childhood as not a great childhood, really. Apparently, Ronnie was, wait for it, it's like the beginning of a dateline, kind of a loner. Mm. Unpopular and probably bullied a bit. This is one of the things, you know. There's two big quotes on Dateline in 48 Hours. Well, he was a loner. Or, she lit up a room. They really lit up a room. So (laughs) so There's a lot of, look for that now, from here on out. He was a bit of a loner. Yeah, a bit of a loner.
1: Described as a bit of a loner. But was he really?
2: Oh, yeah, that's Just, good. sorry,
1: some real quick Keith Morrison there.
2: Yeah, yeah. The other one they do a lot I like is, and then it got worse. <laughs> so I guess Ronnie was unpopular. They didn't say this, but I could see that he might have been bullied a little bit. Joseph did not buy into the idea that Ronnie was possibly possessed. He felt that Ronnie, no. who often had tantrums and was violent towards not only other children, but his family and animals, yeah. he thinks maybe he was just dysfunctional and looking for attention. Right. Now, we want to reiterate that this family is Lutheran, and Troy Taylor talks about how Lutherans originally considered all mental illnesses to be cases of diabolical possession, but in later... Well, I believe
1: that was the position of Martin Luther,
0: the initially, founder of Lutheran.
2: Yes. Yes, right. But in later, more modern times, like 1949, mm-hmm. enlightened men, in quotes, no longer believed that. So they were inclined right. to begin with seeking psychiatric help or medical assistance for Ronnie. Now, Troy adds that not everyone felt that way though. And it's hard to say if Mm -hmm. neighbors would have really known about the events going on inside the home, if it had been uh, kept quiet.
1: No. And that's a great point here in that back then, and even nowadays, people didn't talk about this stuff. You're not out there blabbing. Now it's a different case with the bell, Witch. the other observation I want to make is that think about how much of everything that we're talking about, Paranormal activity, supernatural events happen around the bed. Yeah. (laughs) So it's where you're most vulnerable. It's where you go down to lay your head and you were maybe at the thinnest point between the conscious and subconscious world and the unconscious depths and the higher planes of being and astral projection and all that. It happens a lot around the bed. Second thing, though, yes, keep in mind, though, that the Cantor boys they may not have been informed about what was exactly going on, but there were eyewitnesses to what was going on in Cottage City, Maryland. They just may not have known about it. They're coming up. Right. So from their perspective, it's like, well, I didn't hear about any of this. Well, it doesn't mean it's not true. Or as the saying goes, it's a very popular one that I like, an absence of evidence is not evidence of an absence. Meaning, Just because you don't have evidence that something didn't happen
2: doesn't mean it didn't happen. That's right. Well, I mean, when you think about detached homes next to each other and things going on, like furniture moving around, would you necessarily, especially if you lived a couple doors down, would you hear furniture moving or shaking in the house that's one or two houses down? Not necessarily.
1: Right. So again, to reiterate, just because you didn't hear about it doesn't mean it's it's the truth. Yes, you knew the guy, you were best friends with him during his school days, And you could observe some things going on. And of course, a couple of times the boys came over, the Cantor boys, and they didn't get much information out of Anna, the grandmother, because she spoke very little English. I think she just said, well, Ronnie's, you know, he's gone to St. Louis with relatives. He'll be gone for a while. And that's kind of the end of their association with him. And they don't know what happened to him. They just thought he was very sick, got taken out of school. They really weren't sure why. So of course, they're being very rational about this. They're like, well, we didn't, We didn't see anything about that and we don't really believe in that and it could have just been the bed being really shaky. Well, the fact though that not everybody was there with the family, the Hunklers in Cottage City didn't think anything was going on. So once again, it's not clear what the neighbors knew, but some didn't believe that nothing was going on. Some believed that nothing was happening. Now there's a paranormal investigator named Mark Upsasnik and he investigated the case. He interviewed former neighbors he found that there were no reports of strange sounds coming from the house, and only maybe half of those interviewed even knew the family was connected to the exorcist case. So half these people are, what? What are you telling me? Really? That happened? It's like, I lived for years near this family, never even knew what was going on. That's the point here are trying to make. You have to keep that in mind. If you ask somebody and they say wholeheartedly, no, none of that happened. It's not true. I didn't see any of it. That doesn't mean much other than from their perspective. That's their truth. But is that the truth of what's going on inside the house? So you go to another friend, Alvin Cagey. He's a childhood friend. So Alvin was a really old friend of Ronnie's because he was the neighbor boy. So he was around a lot. Now, the deal is is that back in the day in in the late 40s, a lot of adults played Canasta. It was a very popular game. Remember the Uno craze? Yes. And Pictionary. I don't know even you know what people are doing now. But every Saturday night, the adults would get together and they'd rotate houses. So they'd go to somebody else's house. And when they came to Alvin's house, the cagey household, that's when Ronnie and Alvin started to play together. Because, of course, the adults are playing cards. You kids go out in the backyard or whatever. Just occupy yourselves. Don't bother us. <laughs> that's such a familiar thing. But that's likely how Alvin got to know Ronnie. But he would say Ronnie's condition was not something that was discussed and Alvin only knew that his friend was sick and had been taken to St. Louis for treatment. So now on page 70 of the book here, what does Alvin know about all this? Well, it paints this picture. Edwin, Ronnie's father, told Alvin's father Ronnie was acting funny or strange and then other things were discussed, but there was no mention of possession, of course. Again, that's... You don't lead with that. Yeah. That's embarrassing. People are going to freak out. It's the same with a sludge entity. You've got relatives and people you trusted and trusted friends who don't want you to play with their kids now.
2: Yes. It
1: freaks people out. So you don't mention, You you just say like, well, he's not feeling himself. He's acting very strange. Maybe some weird things are happening. But anyway, that's the first time Alvin heard about any possession while it was going on. And then probably in 1974 when the movie came out. So he didn't really hear about that possession business while it was happening. So Alvin then goes to his father who had never seen the movie or read the book. Keep in mind, this is Alvin's father now. This is years later. Right. Who was friends with Ronnie's father. Exactly. This is an interesting point here. Alvin goes to his dad and he tells him all the details from the book and the movie. And his dad, he knew the book and the movie were about Ronnie Hunkler. But he didn't know any of the details. And just from what Alvin told him, he said, yeah, that's that's their case. Right. That's about Ronnie. Right. That's what happened. Right. So that's what's interesting here. Just from the, the gory, overblown details, Alvin's dad knows that's who they're talking about. That's who this book and this movie are about.
2: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about this, because what happened here is he didn't immediately go to St. Louis, but he was taken out of school. The grandmother, however, was telling people, and the family was telling people, that he had gone to St. Louis, but the reality is he was just taken out of school initially. So let's, let's come back to an event here that allegedly took place in public in Maryland. This is an event so startling that it led to Ronnie being taken out of the junior high school indefinitely. All right, listen to this excerpt from page 71 of the paperback version of The Devil Came to St. Louis. But even in Maryland, there were those who could not explain what they had seen. Ronnie was finally removed from Bladensburg Junior High after a strange event occurred during class one day. The desks in the classroom were movable seat and desk units with a single arm that acted as a writing surface. One afternoon, Ronnie's desk began to shake and vibrate extremely fast. It was rattling and knocking and moving across the floor a short distance. The teacher understandably assumed that Ronnie was shaking the desk and moving it with his feet and told him to stop. But Ronnie shouted back, I'm not doing it. He was taken out of class that day and didn't return for the rest of the school year. Man, I totally remember that style of desk, the way that was described. I grew up with those desks <laughs> yeah. with the arms, yeah. and it always had graffiti on it too. Somebody like carving in it. Well, yes, and gum on the other side. Yeah, lots of gum, yeah. tons of Ugh. gum. Well, they took him out of school for this, and like I said a few minutes ago, his grandmother would tell people in broken English he had gone to St. Louis to visit relatives. However, he was still there in Maryland, and things began to escalate at home. There's a lot of stuff flying around the house, books, Mm -hmm. furniture, large and small.
1: Yeah, and that's another
2: indication here is
1: we'll see some of the experts that are going to weigh in that actually do believe in paranormal activity are going to classify this as classic poltergeist activity. It's right. centered around one young person, possibly troubled a little bit, certainly emotionally tumultuous. And here, Ronnie is always at the center of whatever strange is happening, okay? So there's there's a book that flew off the bookcase and landed at his feet squarely. And this is not just Ronnie saying this. This is people who have, had observed this weird stuff going on and reported it later. And that's what ended up in the diary. One time, a coat flew off the hanger in the closet and it draped itself over Ronnie's shoulder. Yeah, that's, that's freaky. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about Pontefract. Yeah. 30 Pontefract uh, and the black monk here, just weirdness yeah. happening. If uh, seen by family members, but you got to believe them, but it's it's pretty outrageous and it takes a lot of energy here. Listen to this. Kitchen counter items flew off and scattered on the floor. At one point, the end of the kitchen table rose up and the table flipped over. That takes a lot of energy. Yeah, see, it's not just small things moving. It's pretty striking in, I won't say violence, but in the dramatic amount of energy that it's displaying, whatever this phenomena is, that's what's happening here. So it's already an unusual case by paranormal standards. And then the typical things, he would put his clothes on a chair in his bedroom, and then they come back later and the clothes are scattered all over the floor. So... Going to the vertical plane, there's order and then disorder. Yes. This phenomenon
2: seems to like. It likes to stack things, but it also like to scatter things. Yes.
1: It's very strange.
2: Well, here is yet another incident that took place at their home. This one freaked me out. This took place at their home in Cottage City. This is from page 72 of Choi's book, The Devil Came to St. Louis. One weekend, several relatives came to visit, and Ronnie was sitting with them in the living room, relaxing in a large overstuffed chair. Suddenly, the back legs of the chair rose into the air and flipped forward, dumping Ronnie out of it. The boy went sprawling onto the floor, dazed and a little shaken. Family members who were surprised by what they had just seen gathered around the chair, checking to see if something was wrong with it. Ronnie's father and a burly uncle both sat down in the chair and tried to flip it over. Neither of them could do it. As they were still examining the chair, one of Ronnie's aunts pointed to a small end table near the couch. A vase that had been sitting on the table slowly lifted and seemed to hang in the air for a few moments. With a flash, it shot across the room and smashed against the wall. One night, the quiet of the house was shattered by screams coming from Ronnie's room. His parents and grandmother rushed into the bedroom, and as he lay screaming on the bed, they watched a heavy dresser slide across the room blocking their exit back through the door. The drawers of the dresser began to open and close, sliding out and slamming back in again. This continued for nearly a minute, and then stopped. On another occasion, Ronnie's family went to visit some friends who lived in Boonesboro, about 40 miles away. The afternoon passed uneventfully, until Ronnie sat down in a rocking chair in the living room. The adults were chatting in the other room when they heard a sharp cry from the boy. They rushed into the room and later agreed they had all seen the same thing. The rocking chair with Ronnie sitting in it, spinning around and around in the middle of the room. His feet were well off the floor and the chair seemed to be spinning under its own power. It was impossible for it to be moving in the way that it was, but there was no denying what they had seen with their own eyes. All right, so a large chair. This actually happens a few times as you're going to hear. Now, over the history of the show, we've talked about telekinetic events and there's no shortage of them being hoaxed. But in these situations, adults are present in the room and unable to duplicate what's happening with Ronnie. And Ronnie weighed 95 pounds here. My 12 and a half year old is five pounds heavier, maybe a little more. Uh-huh. And to be clear, my son is strong as an ox. He's definitely in the age where you don't want to say, <laughs> go ahead and hit me as hard as you can, because that crap's going to hurt. A lot of that makes sense, though, with my son. His grandfather was a lineman on one of the winningest high school football teams in the history of <laughs> North Carolina. So that tracks. But Ronnie was two years older than my son is now when this all happened and still lighter. So even if he had the strength to flip this chair up, how do you flip a large chair? living room-style chair up from the back legs while you're sitting in it. And then there's the vase, levitating, hovering for a second, and then sailing across the room and smashing into the wall. Also, one of the most notorious events in this infamous legend, the dresser. Mm. And, and finally, the spinning rocking chair. All these activities, if they happened as described, would appear to break the laws of physics. How do you spin a rocking chair with your feet off the ground? I mean, I suppose yeah. if it was constructed unevenly or an uneven floor, you might be able to crab walk a piece of furniture in that situation, but not without a lot of practice and perfect conditions. Still, we're in the realm of events taking place in Maryland again and being relayed after the fact to the Jesuit priests from the family's own accounts, specifically Ronnie's mother and grandmother. So just, and I know I keep saying this over and over, but I just wanted to be clear where and when things are happening. The story has not yet come to St. Louis. Now on page 73 of Troy's book, Troy notes something important here. At no point in the exorcist's diary is there any indication that Ronnie ever spoke in an unknown tongue. Just want to make that Mm -hmm. clear. So all of the exorcist's diary, which is kind of the Bible of this story, which has probably more and less reliable parts to it, there is no mention of him ever speaking in tongues. He adds that without this telltale sign that is among the conditions expected by the revised Rituale Romanum Great Exorcism Rite, one could debate whether an exorcism should have happened at all, because the speaking in tongues, that's a critical component to defining it. That said, though, the family did try to have Ronnie evaluated by both medical doctors and a psychiatrist, and those folks found nothing wrong, although one of them said that he was high-strung, in quotes, and that Ronnie was irritated with his questions. After this, the family decided to turn to a local Lutheran pastor for help with Ronnie's condition, Reverend Luther Miles Schulls of St. Stephen's Lutheran Church, who we mentioned earlier. Now, Odell was raised Lutheran by her mother, Anna Coppage, Ronnie's grandmother, who herself had converted from Catholicism to Lutheranism. Ronnie was baptized Lutheran when he was six months old. Yeah,
1: and a lot of people out there, some will believe that this can't happen. It's just funny how the comments that we get, starting from the sludge entity. Well, this only happened because the family used to practice Catholicism or still does. Right. Or on the other flip side of that is
2: that this can't happen if you've been baptized. Right. So right.
1: Just, just pick your your bias.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, Father Scholes was among the first to recommend medical evaluations. Now, at this point, as we said earlier, there was no procedure. For dealing with diabolical possession in the Lutheran church. And Taylor points out in his book that Martin Luther, quote, eventually expelled many of the rituals of Catholicism, including the rites of exorcism. He believed that a ritual for casting out demons merely made a display of the devil, and he preferred to confront the devil with prayer and contempt. So (laughs) he hates that contempt. Yeah, but the idea is that you pray on this, and and that's how you deal with this situation. It's a bit of a refutation.
1: And reformation, you could say, of what was going on or seen as extravagance
2: or just too much. Too much pomp and circumstance, which maybe is vaunting the devil in this situation. Yeah. So during Reverend Schultz's involvement with the case, lots of things were happening to Ronnie in his own home. So he decided that he needed to try a change of venue and see what would happen. That led to the following event. This is from page 77 of Troy Taylor's book.
1: Finally, on February 17, 1949, Reverend Schulz decided to try an experiment. He wanted to take Ronnie out of his house and away from his mother and grandmother to see what might happen. He had been told that the eerie events followed Ronnie to other places, but Reverend Schulz wanted to observe Ronnie for himself. He took the boy, who was weary from lack of sleep, to his own home for the night. That night, Mrs. Shulls went to the guest room, and Ronnie and the minister retired to the twin beds located in the master bedroom. About ten minutes after lying down, Schultz reported that he heard Ronnie's bed creaking and shaking. He also heard strange scratching noises inside of the walls, just like the ones that had been heard at Ronnie's own house. Schultz quickly switched on the lights and clearly saw the vibrating bed. When he prayed for it to stop, the vibration grew even more violent. He stated that Ronnie was wide awake, but he was completely still and was not moving in a way that would cause the bed to shake. The bed was shaking, he later reported, quote, like one of those motel vibrator beds, but much faster, end quote. Ronnie was wide awake, and Scholes noted his limbs and head
2: and body were perfectly still. Schultz saw this himself. Now, I, I did wonder how he knew what a hotel vibrating bed looked like, but I'll leave that alone for now. Hey, that was... They it, were everywhere, right? untoward. Yes, of course. I, I know. Uh, No, I'm not casting aspersions. I just, I thought it was funny that that was how he described the bed.
1: No, I know. That's, well, that's the only thing that you, you can compare it to back then.
2: Yeah, well... Listen to this additional event that Reverend Shulls witnessed as well from page 78 of Choice Book. This was after the bed event, and the Reverend thought it might be a bad idea to put Ronnie back to bed, so he decided to have him sit in a large chair in the room, and he's going to leave the light on and just observe him.
1: While Schulz watched him closely, the chair began to move. First, it scooted backward several inches, and its legs jolted forward and back. The minister told Ronnie to raise his legs and add his full weight to the chair, but that wasn't enough to stop the chair from moving. Moments later, it literally slammed against the wall and then it slowly tipped over and deposited the boy, unhurt, onto the floor. Shulls guessed that it had taken more than a minute for the chair to gradually tip over and dump Ronnie out of it. Ronnie never moved in the chair. He just sat there staring straight ahead as if in some sort of trance. The minister had been standing in front of the chair when all of this occurred. When Ronnie fell onto the floor, he stepped around the boy
2: and sat down in the chair himself. He tried to tip it over, but he couldn't. Schultz is now beginning to realize that something real is happening here. It's now taking place in his own home, and he can't explain it. So he's got the bed situation, then he's got the chair problem. So he's like, all right, that's it. I'm going to come up with a new plan. I'm going to put Ronnie on the floor. Listen to this from page 78. Trying not to be outwardly unnerved, Reverend Scholes made a pallet of blankets on the floor for Ronnie to sleep on. He left the same lamp switched on and tried to settle the boy down to sleep. Ronnie soon drifted off. And a few minutes later, the minister nodded off too. He woke up around 3 a.m. and caught movement out of the corner of his eye. When he looked, he realized that he was seeing Ronnie's pallet sliding across the floor. The boy and the blankets moved slowly under one of the beds, and Schultz realized that the four sides of the blanket, which had no folds, remained perfectly straight as it seemed to float across the wood floor. If someone had been pushing them, they would have wrinkled. But he refused to believe what he was seeing. So, Shulls finally shouted at Ronnie to stop moving the makeshift bed. When Ronnie was startled awake, he raised up and struck his head on the iron springs under the bed. Stiff and still acting as though he was in a trance, Ronnie never even flinched as his head slammed into the springs over and over again. Reverend Shulls finally made him stop. All of that worked together to make Schultz a true believer, no matter what the Lutheran doctrine said at this time in history. He was convinced something was going on. So convinced, he actually reached out to someone we've mentioned on the show numerous times, Dr. J.B. Rhine, the founder of Duke University's Parapsychology Lab in North Carolina, right up the road from me, believe it or not. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, an hour or so. <laughs> Troy actually has a picture of the letter in his book on page 79. I want to share the contents of the letter here because, and, and this is important. It's not just to be like, oh, hey, listen to this. It's, it's to show that this is an independent corroboration of what was happening in Maryland that is not coming from the family. Right. This is coming from Father Scholes. okay? And here's the letter. This is to Dr. J.B. Ryan. Department of Psychology, Duke University, Durham, North Carolina, March 21st, 1949. Dear Dr. Ryan, we have in our congregation a family who are being disturbed by poltergeist phenomena. It first appeared about January 15th, 1949. The family consists of the maternal grandmother, a 14 old boy who is an only child, and his parents. The phenomena is apparent only in the boy's presence. I had him in my home on the night of February 17th to 18th to observe for myself. Chairs moved with him, and one threw him out. His bed shook whenever he was in it. When he was in bed with me, mine vibrated. There was no apparent motion of his body. I then made a bed on the floor for him, and this glided over the floor. The family lives in Prince George's County. Maryland, so I had their physician place the boy in the hands of the County Mental Hygiene Clinic under Dr. Mabel Rose of the University of Maryland. She and her staff had two interviews with the boy. He was to have gone for a third, but meantime, words appeared on the boy's body, according to the family and friends. My physician and I saw no words, but we did see nerve reaction rashes, which had the appearance of scratches. The words indicated to the family that they should take the boy to St. Louis. They were originally from there. They said the words wrote on him that they should go there for three and a half weeks, double exclamation point. Now he has visions of the devil and goes into a trance and speaks in a strange language, they tell me. Now, again, that's what they told him about this speaking in tongues, but it is not in the exorcist diary. Right. But that's interesting. They told him that, and he's relaying that information. But they also said it was Aunt Tilly. (laughs) I am insisting that the family return here to their home and put the boy into a hospital under the care of a physician who is sympathetic to the case. My physician is sympathetic. Theirs went to the mental hygiene clinic only after insistence and persisted in trying to treat the boy with barbital. Would you or someone from your staff be interested in studying this case here after the family returns? If not, can you recommend some competent person who will do it? Would you want someone from Harvard University too, or do you prefer to investigate alone? The family mentioned other such phenomena as chairs moving, tables overturning, objects flying through the air, and scratchings and drummings. Their floors are scarred from the sliding of heavy furniture. Very truly yours, I believe it's Luther Schultz. That's interesting there because now we have this man from the Lutheran Church saying that he personally witnessed things, Which, for me, adds more weight to what might have been only taken from the Hunkler family in The Exorcist Diary. Right. And it's
1: in our notes here later, you might be talking about this, but J.B. and his wife, Louisa Rhine, who was his partner in all this, they made a trip by car to go see Ronnie And that's when we, you and I were joking. It's like nothing happened while they were there. Right. I think they believe the reports, but of course you go there and it's just like you take your car, it's making this knocking sound and the mechanic. making the noise. And then of course it doesn't happen, but it happens on the drive home. It's like, dang it.
2: And then you got to go back and then it doesn't happen again. Yeah. He was Michigan Frogged, And that's actually consistent. That's consistent with the whole trickster idea. And it happens a lot with the outbursts as well during the course of this story they would get him calm and then as they were walking down the stairs, something would happen. Or they would just, or yeah. they just got back home and something would happen, they would have to go back. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Corey from Utah when I'm not, when I'm not, huh. You know, I'm pretty much always listening to Astonishing Legends. That is, if you believe any of this at all. Now let's get back to the show. This is where the story diverges a little bit from fact to fiction. Many of you will have heard that Reverend Schultz, a Lutheran, supposedly said the words, quote, you have to see a Catholic priest. The Catholics know about things like this, end quote. And Taylor says in his book, he doesn't think Shells ever said that, but he probably should have because it's so good.
1: <laughs> but, <laughs> it is pretty good, yeah.
2: But then this storyline ensues that, well, frankly, is very detailed, too detailed to go into all of here because – we're with Troy in believing that most of this part didn't happen, but he describes it thoroughly in The Devil Came to St. Louis, and that's why we highly recommend you pick his book up if you want to get really super deep into this. And the crux of this is that the Hunklers contacted the St. James Catholic Church in Mount Rainier, Maryland, and got in touch with the assistant pastor, Father E. Albert Hughes. Hughes then witnesses a variety of crazy events, of course, and supposedly reaches out to the most reverend, Patrick O'Boyle, the chancellor of the archdiocese. Troy points out that these are some major players in the Catholic Church at the time, but he adds there's no evidence whatsoever that they were ever involved in this case, nor that O'Boyle and Hughes even met. He says the only story of that happening is in a, quote, unpublished third-hand account, end quote. Mm. Hughes was inexperienced at this time and also not an exorcist. And the story adds that O'Boyle told Hughes not to keep any records of the exorcism, which reinforces the idea that you can't prove this didn't happen because guess what? They said no records. Don't talk about it. Don't tell anyone. Now, supposedly, Hughes did the exorcism on his own, the first exorcism in this case, at Georgetown Hospital. Ronnie was supposedly checked in between February 27th and March 4th of 1949 under an assumed name, and the mother superior of the nuns there told nobody to keep any records either. There's absolutely no way to corroborate any of this. There are additional stories of this, what's called the botched exorcism, and probably the most famous one was that Ronnie was strapped down because there was no one to help Father Hughes, and this is, again, against exorcism protocols of having several people present, and that somehow Ronnie pried a bedspring out of his bed and severely injured Father Hughes with it, causing him to require 100 stitches. Then Father Hughes abandoned the process, left his church, had a nervous breakdown. He was supposedly beat down, withdrawn, and no longer the man he used to be. But then coming back to Mark Sasnick, the researcher that we mentioned earlier and that Troy references yep. too, he found that literally none of that happened. He determined it all came from a book titled Possessed, by author Thomas Allen. Then it was taken and just ran with in multiple other places, like that always happens with these kinds of stories. They get told that and we've told. seen We're retelling so often. It. Yeah, and that's why we try to get the details right, and so does Troy and clearly mm-hmm. Mark Upsassnick. But here's the truth. Ronnie was checked into the hospital somewhere during that time, but under his real name and just for medical and psychological evaluations. Now, on page 87 of Troy Taylor's book, he says... There was no foreign language speaking done by Ronnie, and on top of that, research shows that from 1949 to 1960, Father Hughes, the father in question here, performed almost 3,000 baptisms, 500 marriages, 250 baptisms of converts, and just under 250 burials. He adds that the exorcist diary has one line about Father Hughes, quote, he did not meet the boy in person, end quote. So it doesn't sound like somebody who went off, had a nervous breakdown and fled and had a hundred stitches. So Taylor adds that Thomas Allen got the story from an assistant pastor, Frank Bober, who seemed to be making everything up. And that's the end of the falsehood. So let's get back to this story that is more readily verified. After the real hospital visit that Ronnie went through, he began to show scratches on his body. Sometimes these scratches would form letters and messages. His mother thought maybe they should get Ronnie out of Maryland and get him back to visit family in his hometown of St. Louis. As she was apparently considering this, the word Louis, L-O-U-I-S, appeared on Ronnie's ribcage. Listen to this excerpt from Taylor's book on page 89. The word Louis inexplicably appeared on Ronnie's ribcage. When this skin branding occurred, Ronnie's hands were always visible, and Odell specifically told the priests that he could not have scratched the words himself. He had been under observation at the time, and the words, according to witnesses, had simply appeared. The Jesuits would later get a chance to witness this phenomenon for themselves. In St. Louis, there was a question raised about sending Ronnie to school while in the city but the message no appeared on his wrists, and a large letter N also appeared on each of his legs. And Odell feared disobeying what she believed was an order from a supernatural source. The Jesuits actually saw that happen. So off they went to St. Louis, and that's when the next chapter here begins, which we're going to peek into tonight as we wrap up. This is the part of the story that Taylor believes leads to the real exorcism of Ronnie Hunkler. So after they get to St. Louis, Ronnie's troubles are continuing. More of the typical stuff, more writing on his body. After staying with one family member, the family then went over to Ronnie's uncle's house. It was his father's brother, Leonard Hunkler. Leonard was in the printing business, and his son, Ronnie's cousin, Neil, and Ronnie were very close. They were nearly the same age, and Ronnie was glad to see him. As the family was all in the house, Ronnie's mom, Odell, asked Leonard's wife, Doris, about the idea of enrolling Ronnie at Neal's school. Listen to what ensued. This is from page 94 of The Devil Came to St. Louis. Almost as soon as she said this, the adults heard Ronnie let out a sharp cry from the other room. When Odell walked into the room, Ronnie was looking at her coldly, almost with an expression of anger on his face. Then he grimaced and flinched and slowly lifted the bottom of his shirt. The words, no school, could be seen scratched into his chest. The word no would also later appear on his wrists and on his legs. Odell, filled with fear, never mentioned the idea of Ronnie starting school in St. Louis again. Later that night, Ronnie went to bed in Neil's room. It was located on the second floor of the house, on the left at the top of the stairs. The boys, who had spent many overnight visits with one another over the years, seemed fine as their parents tucked them in. And aside from some giggling and horsing around, nothing occurred for the first hour or so. The two couples were breathing a sigh of relief when strange sounds started coming from the bedroom, followed by a loud yelp of surprise from Neil. The four adults rushed into the bedroom and heard weird scratching sounds coming from the mattress the boys were lying on. Both boys were on their backs on the bed, Frightened but motionless, as the mattress furiously slammed up and down, the bed itself lurched back and forth, sliding forward across the room. You know what, Forrest? This reminds me of the Pickmans. Remember Mm -hmm. the initials of the guy? It was actually on Tony's back at the Sally House. It was the guy who I think built the house that appeared, like H E B or something. Uh, well, that was M C. Yo, M C. That's right. Yeah, right. So they don't know if that
1: would have been the patriarch. Finney, MC Finney. Yeah. But I want to congratulate the the winner of the person playing the drinking game for every time we mention the Sally House. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably on the floor by now. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Don't drive. No, I was going to uh, try and confound the players of the ongoing game by mentioning another haunted location on Second Street in Atchison, Kansas, and that's the Flick Mansion.
2: No, Flick? it's Frick. Frick. Not Flick. Frick. Yeah, it's one of those.
1: It's a yeah, bed and breakfast those, now, like that. but also haunted. There's several of them. So take your pick and actress
2: Yeah, but I did want to say this about Pikmin. He had scratches that appeared on his chest or on his stomach, I believe, right in front of the camera crew from sightings, which like they all saw it and they couldn't put it in the show because they appeared over the course of like 20 minutes. That would be obviously way too long, but they all saw it right in front of him. Yeah. Absolutely. So, no, that was on a
1: three quarter inch videotape. Yeah. And the host, who was so intrigued with that case, he never did this before. He left the studio and he flew out to yes. investigate it himself. Yeah. And they did it. I think they came back a second time and it may have been the second time when, yeah, he was having, uh, they were trying to do an experiment. And that's when on camera, he, cause he could feel a burning happening. He, he said he could feel that sensation coming on. They observed where it was, and then they saw the faint scratches appear, but he got scratched up a lot and yeah. then you wonder, is like is he trying to hurt him, or is he just a message board is he yeah. just is he just a supernatural whiteboard and yeah. people are just like, well, that's how we leave messages
2: well, and that's what's happening to Ronnie here over and over, and, and you'll hear of some other words that were written on him it's It's really bad situation. So again, we're now in St. Louis. Ronnie has come home, so to speak, and so has his family, mm-hmm. because that's where they started out. And they've come back after Maryland. And this is the point at which Father Raymond Bishop gets involved in Ronnie's story. Neil, Ronnie's cousin that he was close with, the, the son of Leonard and Doris, had an older sister named Janice, spelled like Janice Joplin. Now, Janice was a student at St. Louis University studying to be a teacher. She came up with the idea of talking to her favorite teacher, Father Bishop, the head of the Department of Education and himself an instructor of teachers. Father Bishop met with other revered Jesuit priests, and they decided together that Ronnie must be helped. There's a lot more to that, but read Troy's book if you want to get into the details of all the other folks here that were involved. It's important to understand here who and what the Jesuits are, and Taylor explains it really well on page 97 of his book. No other Catholic order has more martyrs to the faith, and no order can claim as many members who have spent time in jail. Ignatius Loyola had gathered around him an energetic band of well-educated men who desired nothing more than to help others find God in their lives. His original plan had been to form a society of roving missionaries, but it soon became clear that colleges offered the greatest possible service to the church, offering moral and religious instruction, as well as teaching the gospel of service the new Jesuit schools that formed became such an influential party of the Catholic reform that it was later called, quote, a rebirth of the infant church, end quote. The genius and innovation that the Jesuits brought to education came from Loyola's spiritual exercises, the object of which was to free a person from predisposition and bias, thus enabling free choice and a happy and fulfilled life. The Jesuits were always deeply involved in scholarship, science, and exploration. By 1750, 30 of the world's astronomical observatories were overseen by Jesuit astronomers, and 35 lunar craters have been named to honor Jesuit astronomers. The Gregorian calendar system was the work of Jesuit Christopher Clavius, the most influential teacher of the Renaissance. Five of the eight major rivers in the world were first charted by Jesuit explorers. Two of the statues in Statuary Hall in the United States Capitol building in Washington our Jesuits, Eusebio Kino and Jacques Marquette. So I did not know that. I mean, I knew a little bit about them, but once again, Troy showing how concise he can be and get a lot of explanation into a couple of paragraphs, unlike us. Mm -hmm. It's very impressive. So Troy goes into a detailed journey of the Jesuits that is incredibly fascinating. So Grab the Devil Came to St. Louis if you want to know more about them. The gist of his description of their work, faith, and academic knowledge and approach to Catholicism is that Ronnie was in the right hands with them And it was a sticky situation because at the time, the Jesuits in St. Louis were working hard for equality there, particularly for Black people. So they had a lot going on, and they had concerns about the appearance of being involved with an exorcism at such a politically delicate time. Now, Father Bishop came and met with Ronnie and examined the home he was staying in. He found Ronnie to be a nice, unathletic boy who was (laughs) well-mannered. He listened to all the stories about Ronnie, including the scratches on his body, but as of yet, he had not seen anything himself. He went through the house with holy water, blessing all the rooms, and he even brought a holy relic with him that he pinned to Ronnie's pillow. It was a second-class relic of St. Margaret Mary. Now, I didn't know what this meant, but Taylor explains that it's something that was touched by the saint, like clothing or wood. A first-class relic being a piece of the saint's body itself, like hair or a bone fragment. St. Margaret Mary claimed to have had a mystical encounter with Jesus where he had appeared in front of her, placing her heart inside of his own, and then drawing it back out like a burning heart-shaped flame, the sacred heart. Mm. So um, everything I know about relics I learned from Pillars of the Earth, sadly, which is a great book, but but it is fascinating. The other thing that book talks about is the use of False relics to draw people into a church.
1: Well, yes. And there's a funny passage that's uh, Mark Rylance is in Wolf Hall, one of my favorite productions about Jesus well, goes back to the vertical plane. So it would be the Henry VIII days, 1530s. And of course, he's taxing the churches a-, a lot. And so I think one thing, and I gathered this also from my history lessons, is that instead of sending money, which is really what they want from these yeah. uh, monasteries, and churches, you could instead send a holy relic. So there's a scene where Mark Reiland, he's counting all the stuff that's coming in because that's his job for yeah. to, for the king. His assistant says, uh, well, there's another box. He's like, Oh, well, what is that? He's like, the holy relic fingernail clippings of somebody, like <laughs> Thomas right. Aquinas or somebody. Right, like, right, right. And he just says, good God, the man must have had 10,000 fingers because <laughs> everybody's sending in fingernail right. clippings. like, yeah, yes, these are yes. holy yeah.
2: relic, yes. Yeah, yeah. right. These right. are
1: taxes, here you go. It's just one of those things. But I do wonder about bits of people that are supposedly holy that may have some effect. Again, going back to the Millennium episode with Lance Henriksen, they were after the hand of St. Sebastian mm-hmm. or St. Augustine. One of those two, one of those saints. But it, it supposedly had some very magical power that would save the world. So there mm-hmm. you go. But yes, but that's a, it's a long tradition of that kind of stuff going on.
2: Well, Father Bishop is getting ready to go for the ride of his life here. Uh, take a listen to this. This is going to be Father Bishop's first experience with whatever was plaguing Ronnie. This is from page 106 of Taylor's book.
1: When it was time for Ronnie to go to bed for the night, he went upstairs to the room that Bishop had blessed. A few minutes later, Father Bishop went into his room and told him good night. They talked for a few minutes, and then Bishop left with Ronnie chuckling over some small joke. He went back downstairs and was preparing to leave, when they all heard something upstairs. They listened for a moment and then were stunned by the sounds of thumping and banging on the second floor. When Ronnie began screaming, they ran for the stairs. Father Bishop was shocked by what he saw when he entered the door of Ronnie's bedroom. According to the exorcist's diary, even after the blessing of the house and in spite of the relic, The swaying was evident, and the scratches appeared. When Father Bishop sprinkled St. Ignatius' holy water on the bed in the form of a cross, the movement ceased quite abruptly, but began again when Father stepped out of the room. During the course of the 15 minutes of activity, a sharp pain seemed to have struck R in his stomach, and he cried out. The mother quickly pulled back the bed covers and lifted the boy's pajama top enough to show zigzag scratches and bold red lines on the boy's abdomen. Father Bishop added that Ronnie was, quote, perfectly still, end quote, on the bed, and that he did not exert any physical effort. Regardless, the mattress on the bed jerked back and forth and thumped up and down without any logical explanation. Moments after the holy water was sprinkled onto the bed, as stated in the diary, the movement stopped and then started back up again when Father Bishop left the room.
2: Well, this would be only the beginning of a situation that would deteriorate into something that Father Bishop could not have imagined. He wound up enlisting the help of one of his closest friends, Father William Bodern. Listen to this encounter with Ronnie as described by Father Charles O'Hara of Marquette University in Milwaukee to Father Eugene Gallagher, or Gene, of Georgetown University. Gallagher was teaching a class on exorcisms at the time. One of his students, William Peter Blatty. Here is a preview of next week's episode from page 153 of The Devil Came to St. Louis, Uncensored, The True Story of the 1949 Exorcism by Troy Taylor.
1: One night, the boy brushed off his handlers and soared through the air at Father Bodern, standing at some distance from his bed with a ritual book in his hands. Presumably, the father was about to be attacked, but the boy got no further than the book. And when his hands hit that, I assure you, Gene, I saw it with my own eyes. He didn't tear the book. He dissolved it. The book vaporized into confetti and fell in fine small pieces all over the floor. (laughs)
2: That's going to wrap up part one of our series on the true story that inspired The Exorcist. We'll be back next week with part two. That is, if you believe any of this at all, at all, at all, at all. And when the wolfbane blooms and the
1: moon is full and bright. Fighting the ghosts and the ghosts and the ghosts.
2: Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah voorhees Wendell and Brandon Schexnader. The show is co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is
1: available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com, or
2: interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also support the show at patreon.com astonishinglegends Legends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.